0: Hey, everybody, welcome to another episode of the FinTech Hustle. I'm Ron Shevlin, Chief Research Officer at Cornerstone Advisors and one of your co-hosts joined again, of course, by Sam Kilmer, Managing Director of the FinTech Advisory Practice here. And we've got a great show lined up for you today. We've got two guests. Uh, the first is Peggy Mango, Operating Partner at PayPal Ventures, where she's been for, I think, coming up about two years now. Prior to that, she was the SVB General Manager at, of Innovation at Wells Fargo. Uh, Peggy was also the founder and CEO of SparkGift, which is where I think she was when I first met her, so going a while back. And before that, she held senior roles at Google and Visa, so clearly she can't make up her mind whether she wants to work for big established firms or small startups. So we'll talk more about her with that. Uh, and also joining us today is Neil Underwood, co founder and general partner of Canopy Ventures and president of Live Oak Bank. Neil co-founded Live Oak Encino and, and digital banking provider Aperture and on the board of a lot of fintech startups. And uh, prior to being a founder of fintech companies, banks, and venture funds, Neil was a uh, general manager at S1, one of the early digital banking providers. So Sam, if it's okay with you, let's um, kind of jump right into uh, discussion with, with Peggy and Neil. Peggy, I'll start with you. Uh, you know, most of our, our audience, our listeners, our viewers, whatever... Um, are typically fintech uh, technology providers, a lot of bankers, credit union folks, but not a lot of venture fund or, or otherwise uh, investor types. So uh, I would imagine that many of them think like I do that your day is filled with just going out to breakfast, lunch and dinner with, with uh, fintech uh, founders. Uh, hanging out at conferences, and you know, maybe going to the beach down in Miami, where it seems like a lot of you types have uh, migrated to recently. So, set us all straight, Peggy, and and tell us a little bit about what your typical day looks like.
1: Sure, I'll start with um, what PayPal Ventures Fund is. Right, so we are a strategic VC. We invest for financial return uh, in four broad areas. So consumer fintech, commerce enablement, infrastructure, which includes risk, fraud, security, cyber. And then our fourth and growing bucket is infrastructure surrounding crypto, blockchain, and NFTs, the broad crypto uh, infrastructure play. And when you think about why we exist, so we invest for financial return, we don't require a strategic relationship or a business sponsor from PayPal, when you think about why we exist, we are an arm of PayPal that uh, helps bring insights and market learnings back to the mothership. So, I mean, I came from innovation at Wells Fargo. That was one way of doing it. We had a large like, R&D team. We did proof of concepts. We did white papers. Um, having a strategic VC like PayPal Ventures is another way for to in, essentially have an in-house Um, innovation arm where you have people on the ground learning, you know, not just from the companies that you invest in, but from all the companies that you say no to. Um, And so that's a a little bit of a broad overview of PayPal ventures. We're investing out of our second fund, 500 million. Uh, We're a global team. We aim to invest 50% outside of the U.S. When you think about my day, so I'm an operating partner for the fund. So I, um, I have a team that that our our remit is a few things. So I'm involved in in every deal that we do and every follow-on. So I you know need to get to conviction and work with the investing team so that the uh the team is on board with new and follow-on investments. But also there's about 30 to 40% of our portfolio that is looking to do a deal with PayPal, right? You know, they want to sell to PayPal, they want to partner with PayPal. So I have a member of my team that Spends most of their time just, you know, working the commercial angle and trying to help these portfolio companies with like working within PayPal, um, whether it's relationship mapping, whether it's helping them with their pitch deck, but you know, how, how can we um, make it easier for them to get to the right people to explore commercial um commercial partnerships or commercial arrangements? And then, you know, yes, we do have an ecosystem play. So we do. I do attend the conferences and I do try to make myself available to companies that want to pitch PayPal. But um, I'm sure as Neil can um, express further, there are so many good deals out there. There's so many great companies that it really comes down to, I would say, like a bandwidth perspective. There's only so many deals that we can do, investments we can do a year. Um, And so there's a lot of companies that we see that we want to see, and we can't invest, obviously, in all of the good ones.
0: Awesome. So a quick follow-up question to that. You listed four areas, I think, of focus. They seem very broad. Are there areas of the fintech and financial services world that you're not looking at?
1: So I would say, to be honest, we're doing less in U.S. consumer Right. And I think that it, if you look at our US investments over the last couple of years, it's a lot more, um, it's a lot more B2B. It's a lot more, I would say, uh, embedded finance plays, infrastructure plays. Um, and, and I think that's a little bit of the trajectory of fintech and the investing world. Right. Like you, like it was a lot, um, you saw a lot more deals happening in consumer uh, in the years past, it's just, it's, it's, we, it's harder for us to get to conviction. And, and a lot of it is surrounding CAC, Ron, and you and I have had, you know, these discussions about the neo banks and the neo advisors and how difficult it is for them to acquire and pull customers away and make it, you know, from large institutions and make it their primary account, which, which these neo institutions need to make the economics work. Yeah.
0: So just to be clear though when you say not focusing on the B, on the you know the b2c you're really not focusing on those that are direct to consumer versus the b2b to cs or those exactly. that enable the the direct to consumer firms.
1: I would say yeah we're doing less um direct to consumer in the US. Right. Um, like globally we think there's a lot of opportunity um going direct to consumer but just we're just doing less in the US. Yeah. Well,
0: we're going to get a lot. I want to get, uh, and Sam and I do want to kind of probe on what, what you're seeing that's hot and stuff, but let's get Neil into the conversation. And you know, same question to you, Neil, what's what's your day look like?
2: Well, I did not go to the Bitcoin conference in Miami, the boondoggle down there, but I am going to go to a crypto conference in the Bahamas. It's called Salt in a couple of weeks. And look, I mean, I think um, just to soundbite on Canopy, I think many might know our story, but just um, for those that don't, We've had close to 50 banks invest in our fund between 10 and 50 million. So we kind of are a, a venture fund, a strategic venture fund for banks. Our banks are our, our LPs. And um, we've uh, successfully deployed fund one. We're on to fund two and hopefully closing that out here uh, somewhat shortly. But <clears throat> my day... You know it's actually you know quite similar. It's a combination of listening to we call them fintech prospects, but listening to the CEOs and their pitches, and then managing the portfolio. The only third uh, vector that we have to deal with a little bit more at Canopy is we've got a lot of LP meetings, a lot of one on one bank meetings we'll present to the bank boards about the future of Fintech. Uh, we'll do thematic um you know one-on-ones or zoom calls on specific things like identity bank infrastructure uh smb marketing neo is a great one um so it's it's really a combination of those three you know i think you, look we're a bunch of operators turned venture folks you know much like uh, peggy and i think we've got um you know great background but relative to fintech and and understanding fintech but um the context and the exposure of meeting with four literally i meet with probably four uh fintech ceos a day just on 30 minute zoom calls hearing a pitch and uh and so do my partners we have about 24 professionals with us uh right now a team of 24 and you know it's really interesting because you just hear so many different things and i think this you know, the, the context and the exposure help one get conviction or when you when you see something that's just completely different, uh, and you and you just know this one's gonna be a, a home run, you could kind of go deep. And so our fund actually is we'll look at a thousand companies a year and we'll probably do, you know, 20, um, just to give you guys some aspect of the ratios there. And we like highly concentrated positions, meaning. When we do see a company we love, we're ready to write a big check and, you know, own a a, a, a nice piece of it, um, not control, uh, way under control. But uh, that's that's really been our thesis thus far. We're going to continue that same thing into fun, too.
3: But, uh, is that a wire transfer or, a, or, a, or an actual check? Or is they using the bill <laughs> on I mean, Yeah, yeah, it yeah. The it's funny you mention that, Sam. I,
2: people still use the word check. You know they're going to write a check, and it's like, man, you know, you think for as you know for being in venture and technology, we'd actually use you know another another way. Right, we're going to change it into a cryptocurrency, and we're going to move it via crypto to the the checking account, or the operating account. How about that?
3: Well, we could just use PayPal. I mean, that's there you the other go.
2: Thing. Amen.
3: Um, but you know, I I think one thing that's just I'm darn curious about because you're seeing so many. Uh, you mentioned more transactions than you really can even have time to participate in. You mentioned b to you know, kind of b to b to C or, and also embedded finance. But I was just kind of wondering if there are any areas when you just think about what's hot right now for you, for, for each of you, you know, what's hot and like, if, I guess the other thing is what's maybe not cold, but what's cold or lukewarm that maybe you think ought to be hot. And I don't know, um, Peggy, if you want to give it your, you know, take a stab at, it. I'm just genuinely curious as to what you're seeing right now that are any categories of things beyond your big four, or any maybe some subcategories in there that jump out at you as being hot or should be hotter.
1: Sure. So, um, one one area within crypto which I use as an example, especially when I'm talking to people that are just getting started in crypto. I talk about um, the the desire for a consumer or a business to get better yields on their accounts, right? On their cash holdings, right? Everyone can understand that um, that their current bank or their current um, personal bank account or treasury management account is not paying uh, very much yield on the cash in the account. And so when I look at a... I would say a more obvious use case. It is who are the companies that are going to help unlock greater yields for for consumers and greater yields for treasury management. And so that area um, that enabling um, crypto technology or companies that are going to enable that and sell into uh, banks to enable that for their customers, I think is, is going to be an area of adoption that it feels obvious to me and that we're going to see more of. And so it's this risk adjusted um access to higher yields. And and I'll I'll pause there because I'm 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 curious if Neil is looking at that as well.
2: Yeah, well first of all on on the crypto side we kind of share your view. We we kind of love uh blockchain crypto infrastructure companies, you know, it's happening out there and so the question is how can we as a sector in banking or even in fintech, uh, you know, make sure we have all the reg and compliance wrapped around the stuff that's happening. And that seems to be a bit of a moving target. And um, But there's some companies that clearly have have uh, stood out in that particular subsector. Uh, you guys have mentioned embedded banking. I think that's one of my favorite or embedded finance. It's probably one of my favorite topics uh, to talk about. I literally just got out of a two-hour meeting at Live Oak Bank on the concept of embedded finance. So it's, it's you know, and I'm starting to hear CEOs talking about it on earnings calls. And, you know, I think it's this recognition that consumers and SMBs aren't gonna be going into branches anymore. And h- how do we embed our financial services companies in uh, other software such that uh, accounts can be open there, money can be moved there, credit can be established there. Uh, Platinum Stripe are great a- examples of API first um, platforms that are selling to developers. And I think banks have to kind of ultimately follow that same that same path. A couple of great little technology companies have popped up along the way to help banks do that. But I think the, the business of uh, embedded banking for financial services companies is going to really quickly evolve here in the years to come. And I think the... the you know, it has to be a different way of thinking, uh, you know, embedding your bank, whether it's loans or deposits or payments into another e-commerce app. Um, you know, great example at Live Oak, we're out there looking at uh, practice management software providers such that when a veterinarian enrolls in a piece of software, uh, the last step on that enrollment is a little logo, a Live Oak bank logo, and through elegant APIs, New account opening APIs, which are something very different. Industry hasn't really solved for that. Um, when you've got new account opening APIs, you can do that and then uh go back in and stay in the experience of the of the e-commerce platform or the practice management provider.
1: Right. No, absolutely. And and you know, we've looked at, at that a lot as well. Like what, what's the what are the next like vertical software that are serving these different industries? Right. We have some of the obvious ones we've seen already, but like you just mentioned, like veterinary care, right. We've we've seen like dentistry, we've looked at uh, beauty and um, salon vertical software and, you know, the different fintechs serving and serving that vertical software and embedding it into the experience. And I'll, and I'll just a quick, quick plug on the um, back to the crypto. We share, your thesis surrounding uh, like investing in the infrastructure um, that is helping to make crypto regulatory compliant, tax compliant. So we we are an investor in TRM Labs, which is AML for... Love TRM
2: Labs. That one got away from us. Damn. <laughs>
1: Sorry. <laughs> and, and Taxbit, which is uh, helping uh, companies be compliant with uh, the tax requirements surrounding crypto holdings.
0: Yeah, just a quick comment on that, because we just recently uh, completed a, it was a consumer survey about consumers' interest in uh, you know getting accounts and doing financial business with non-financial providers. We'll have a, actually a series of reports. First, they'll come out soon. But one of the things that we kind of found I thought was interesting was that, yes, there's a lot of interest from a general consumer perspective. But when you look at it from a small business owner perspective, it was huge. And the other big opportunities were... Um, gig workers and and gamers um you know the gamer population is is absolutely huge globally uh, and their interest in you know being able to interact and transact seamlessly within the game environment which kind of begs the question you know what do you guys see as future opportunities from from a metaverse perspective more than just gaming um neil you want to start there then peggy will will ask you the same thing
2: Sure. Look, I think the gaming on the gaming side of it, that's that's a quite interesting approach. I mean, that's another example in my view of embedded banking where you can embed a bank or financial services company inside. Uh you look the metaverse to me, uh, you know, I just think it's still very early days. Uh this is, you know, folks have tried this before. And I I actually even bought an Oculus device, uh Oculus device and played around with it for quite some time. I mean, the, the experience is truly immersive and and interesting. I just don't know that I'm going to be in that for eight hours a day. And so I, I still think, and this is probably not a popular uh, view, but I just think it's really early days. So those that are staking their virtual claims, whether they be virtual branches or um, stores, I think it might it might be early there. Uh, however, it's something uh, we're watching quite quite closely. Um, you know, we haven't made any investments in the space just yet.
0: Peggy, what's your take?
1: So. We looked at, we had a thesis surrounding like the creator commerce and um, based on the the research that we did that was in 2021, we invested in a few companies, uh, Caro, Cameo, and the third is Stream Elements, which is almost, it's a uh, company that enables streamers to engage with their fans and also monetize surrounding those fans and also monetize with brands. So um, when you think of like streamers, it's mostly gamers globally. um, And this infrastructure play is helping these gamers monetize and engage with their fans. And so, um, so we definitely see opportunity in gaming. I think And that was 2021. We looked at it like from a creator commerce and less of a crypto metaverse type of lens. Um, Going into 2022, we are it's early for us as well, but we're looking at, you know, what is the crypto and gaming crossover? Is it will it be NFTs that uh, that can be used in games and uh, but then are portable, right? Like, you know, they can go outside outside the game. So for us, it's a little bit early, but it's definitely exciting. And the NFT world itself has about five different subcategories that are equally exciting, surrounding not just art, but access and in, you know in-game skins and points. Um, so there, it's it's really exciting. It's, it's uh, we're looking to dig in more.
2: Yeah, following on, I think, you know, that, that that is super interesting in terms of the gig. You mentioned the gig economy is the sole props. Um, you know, we do like investing in that particular market segment. We love the macro trends of what's happening there. And we do see more products, uh, you know, kind of being presented to that particular market segment. Uh, so we have our eye out on that as well.
0: Hey, I just want to run a theory by you guys and get your kind of reaction to it. You know, I... I couldn't tell you whether the metaverse will be big or not and don't really care about that. But at the moment, I I think there's this huge opportunity for banks, financial institutions not to to create uh, or start up branches in the metaverse. I actually think that's one of the stupidest ideas I've ever heard. And we can fight about or argue about that later. But I think there's this huge opportunity right now to be the lender, And I don't think of them as mortgages. They're not mortgages of buying land. It's more of a, to me, it's more akin to a commercial real estate investment. You know, you've got to assess the business plan of the borrower, how they're going to use the, you know, the land in the metaverse, whether they're getting it from Decentraland or, you know, wherever they may be getting it from. Neil, from from a Live Oak perspective, do you do you see any opportunities to kind of be the lender of choice into the metaverse?
2: Sorry, April 1st is behind us because I I swear what I'd love to do is take that to my chief credit officer and say, hey, look, I got a great new vertical for us. It's going to be lending to land in the metaverse. Look, I, I think um, I think that can be real over time. I just think the underlying it's going to be hard for banks. You're going to get alternative lenders maybe to do that. It's going to be hard for banks and a chief credit officer to understand, you know, the collateral, the underlying collateral. Um, that's there. And you could say, well, no, look, here are some bona fide trades that are happening. Um, but I I see that they would probably be pretty volatile. And who knows whether metaverse 2.0 that comes out that is in a completely different world, it's gonna have, you know, so the, the, the only challenge there is back to supply and demand. There truly are unlimited worlds that can be created virtually. And so it really, in my view, at least anyway, brings into question okay how does one truly value the underlying asset as collateral, you know, to do a loan? But I, yeah. I'm sure I'm probably That's wrong.
3: That's so interesting to me because it's like, well, first of all, you need to tell the chief credit officer that it's going to be collateralized by a stash box from That's your- <laughs> yeah. you need more collateral, Matt? I'm sorry, but you're pushing too hard. This is, this is the new, this is the new world. But I, I, what I think is interesting about it is even going back to when I was a banker and making my first, choice around which digital banking platform it was wasn't always interesting it's like okay what i loan this company money versus what i buy tech from it and i and and it's always been like well are we using the same metrics or are we using the same values and i think we're trying to get there where it's, it's sort of one conversation around what's considered valuable versus not and kind of the future view i don't know do you do you guys have a um Oh, you know, do you have a formula to how you view valuations or do you follow, you know, is it, are you, do you follow sort of like in a, some type of an adopted methodology that you've brought in or have you created your own way of, we've got five things we look for and two of them are wholly economic and three of them are, you know, sort of like, um, oh, well, this kind of thing? I mean, how, how do you, how do you look at valuation um, since you brought it up there, Neil, on the, Think about the chief credit officer. I don't know. Peggy any thoughts on how you how do you guys look at values and whether or right. not you think something is overheated or, or undervalued?
1: Sure. So we have standard methodology where we look at uh the company's um their their PL, their forecast, their execution against against plan. And then we also do a return analysis, right? So um, where like what needs to be true for them to deliver X return. And then part of that return analysis compares comps for other companies that may have exited. to so give us a direction for, you know, whether the valuation, um, the current valuation is, uh, reasonable and the return we expect from the investment is on track as well. Um, However, these last couple of years have been a little bit wild, I think for everyone investing.
2: Yeah, no, I'd, I'd add on to that, like growth and gross margin last year. Uh, literally there were just a couple metrics, growth and gross margin. If you had great growth, uh, you know, kind of triple, you know, tripling growth and, you know, kind of best in class, 70 to 80% gross margins, people would be clamoring for that, that company and valuations would, would just go up and it's, You know, the multiples on ARR, annual recurring revenue, which is monthly gap. This man always loves to tease me because rarely do we talk gap. But the last month's gap revenue times 12 and then a multiple on top of that are kind of how, I mean, look, you know, three or four years ago, that may, the multiple may have been 10. I've seen it go up to 40 or 50 in some uh, odd cases now for the exact same property, this exact same um, growth characteristics. And so those are ones you're gonna to have to stay away from because they're overheated. They're gonna have a really difficult time when you when we underwrite them and venture, we're underwriting them to a return. Can we can we do a 5x or a 10x? Right. And when those valuations are that high, um, just the risk of being able to underwrite it to that metric is gonna be really, really difficult. So, you know, the the new this year has brought in something completely different: the public equity market meltdown, uh now feeding into later stage growth. It's got a lot of folks, those crossover guys like Tiger and others are like, man, you know, what's the right price to pay uh, for a later stage growth given the IPO exit may not have the same profile or probably won't as the the you know So we're seeing some of that revalue come into play. Uh, some of the metrics we're looking at now uh, are burned to revenue. So we want to make sure you know a company doesn't have a series C burn with the series A revenue. Even if that revenue has great growth characteristics, so you know, it, it, you know, the efficiency of, of the, the investments are now being looked at and scrutinized way more uh, than than a couple of, than a year ago when it was just the wild west of valuation.
0: So, question for for both of you, Peggy, I'll start with you. Which fintechs are overvalued right now? Who will you not invest in in the next round because the valuation's already too astronomical?
1: Oh, um,
0: see, you know, you get 30 seconds to think about it. Sorry, Peggy, to put you on the spot.
1: Yeah, no, that's okay. Um, look, I would say many of the, I, I'm not going to give you, I'm not going to point to one or two companies, but I would say many of, if, if you were to Google companies that canceled their SPAC, but then raised, uh, privately, those we would not invest in those companies. Um, and, and so what we started to see is many of the SPACs, like many of the companies that were going to back um, were not able to get the valuation in this current environment that they in the public markets um, that they're able to get in the private markets. And so um, they are they were able to raise in the private markets at um, high, high valuations. And I think time will tell if the, if the public markets turn around by the time they um, are ready to go public, if 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 that's going to work out for them.
2: Yeah, I, look, my quick answer would have been no comment specific to a a company. That wouldn't be quite fair, but I would have maybe um, have us look at the profile of a company that that we just would give an automatic no to. And it's uh, connected to the way I, you know, the burn that I, we talked about before, you know, there, there are companies out there that are just not efficient. They've hired a ton of people in a pandemic. Uh, you, you, one has to question the culture if there's a massive amount of burn ahead of the revenue. And so we can take a quick look at the PL and you know, get, no matter what sector or subsector the the Uh, companies in and and kind of give a give a quick no so again path towards profitability is is a thing that you know we're not uh requiring of all of our companies but you just have to see kind of how efficient they are relative to the the tam the market and the market size um so I, i think those are some some quick ones and then you know i think the uh the CEOs that don't have the experience to, you know, navigate a cycle, if the numbers, you know, are just kind of soft and, you know, kind of, you kind of hit the no button. We are seeing, it's a bit of a tale of two cities. There's some really hot companies out there and everybody wants to invest in them. Like all the usual suspects are on the table, you know, driving up the valuation. But if it's not a perfect story, meaning the growth isn't perfect, the burn's a little bit ahead, the leadership team's good, but, you know, Then those are getting significantly discounted in in our experience.
3: Very interesting.
1: And I'll just yeah, I'll just make a comment that's um, somewhat related. So, like what we're seeing is not just the venture side, but is it's also the recruiting, right? So a lot of top talent. it's harder for these later stage companies with really high valuations right now, it's potentially hard for them to attract top talent because this top talent has options and they're worried that it's going to take too long for the company to grow into the valuation that they have given, you know, Square is down significantly and and public company comps are down significantly, even um, late stage private valuations for some of them have come down. So um so I, I think it's gonna it creates a a talent problem as well.
2: That's really well said. And yeah. it, look it forces us to think about maybe even earlier stage. Uh we love the term incubation where it's pre-product, pre-revenue. Uh we meet a great CEO that has a great idea. We validate it with you know partners like Peggy or our banks that are out there say, hey guys, what do you think? Does this does this fill a void? And you know, if the answer is yes, then uh, you know, we'll all put a little bit more in on that and then and then be able to be there for the, the ride up.
3: Really interesting. I I, I think also the, the perspectives that I heard from you um that kind of back to your point earlier, Neil, about um, you know, what am I going to tell my chief credit officer? And I I just think it's really interesting that, that both of you are former bankers. You know, it's it's sort of I think we we run across people every day Ron and I do in our, our world and, and I'm sure you do as well that many of them haven't been bankers before they've been tech entrepreneurs or they've been in they've been sort of uh, serial investors, serial startup folks it's all good stuff. I I guess one thing I am just curious is when you guys look back on the fact that you were bankers, um do you think it's helped like in what you do every day. Do you think your experience as a banker has helped you, um, and how, or or not? Has it held you back? Has it made you think perhaps too conservatively? I don't know,
2: uh, uh, Neil. If you want to give a first shot at no, that. No, I mean, look, I, I think, uh, I think it it has certainly helped. Uh, running a bank for ten years, going to the regulator meetings, uh, you know, and and examining the findings, and so it just the discipline around understanding all that is regulatory compliance. I think many of the FinTechs that don't have that experience, quite frankly, underestimate uh, that uh, that element and what it means to to run a financial services company. I still remember, you know, was, was it, uh, yeah, it was Lending Club and OnDeck, their public filings, their S1 2015, I'm dating myself here, but they just were flaunting the fact that, you know, they didn't care about regulatory compliance, banks suck. And, you know, ultimately, I think they all, um, you know, five years later, uh, found out that actually that stuff really, really matters, whether you're a bank or not. And so the other thing is, we see a lot of convergence happening where some of the bigger fintechs. Um, some of the NEOs even that have these really horrible interchange-only models, they've spent, you know, hundred bucks to acquire a customer and the LTV, the lifetime value is really not there. They're gonna have to increase their average revenue per unit or their ARPU and cross-sell products. Um, and if they're gonna cross-sell products, one product, one profitable product can be lending, but if you're gonna lend money, you kind of probably need to be a bank ultimately and, and not rely on capital markets to, to fund. So, you know, we think there's going to be some of this convergence where you'll get these fintechs that are acquiring bank. It's it's already happening. You've seen, you know, between the SoFi's and uh, Square getting the ILC charter. And I wonder I wonder what that first uh, regulatory exam is going to be like when you've got a bunch of the, you know, just the, the culture of that. Uh, you know, coming in and trying to understand the, the bank side of it, I think there's there's going to be some lessons learned.
3: Hey, Peggy, any any thoughts on uh, your experience as a banker and whether they've helped or not? Or
1: yeah, oh, um, I I mean, I love my time at Wells, and 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 I would say at more traditional financial services companies like Visa, um, those were tremendous tremendous experiences, and it definitely helps me. Um, in in investing, and, and I'll say a couple of reasons. Like I, yes, I understand the business a lot better, be, you know, after being on the inside of those two companies. But what it, I think the value that I can give to our portfolio companies is helping them sell to banks, like sell into Wells Fargo or sell into PayPal or sell into Bank of America, uh, because I understand kind of how they think about buying. And yes, the sales cycle is long, but it's also It's not a it's not a rip and replace. It is a how can you help this bank solve this particular problem, be it around risk or account open or identity? And then, you know, and then it becomes this is how I advise them, at least. And like, how can you incrementally help them? Um, And then what are the basis points? And then what are the total accounts that they whether account they open or logins per year or whatever? Um, because it is a land and expand strategy for large banks. Um, and so that's what I work with them on. Uh, like you're not going, they're not going to rip out their entire risk fraud system. And they have very smart people and they have lots of, I would say, partners and vendor relationships. You, you will be one of many. Um, so it's, it's helping them with that pitch and that sales process, that enterprise sales process um, and, and all the wraparound that goes into those meetings, like who they should be talking to, what white papers that they should be referencing, um, and how you can show the math potentially that is going to uh, get the attention of, of these business leaders, these business buyers.
2: Really interesting, yeah, we'll see
1: guys, I I think
0: we are uh, pretty up up to our time limit here. So uh, I want to thank all of you and uh, Peggy Mango, operating partner at uh, PayPal Ventures, Neil Underwood, president Live Oak Bank and managing partner at Canopy Ventures. We really appreciate you guys taking some time uh, to join Sam and I on the FinTech Hustle. And for everybody uh, listening in, watching, whatever, thanks a lot. And we hope to see you at the next episode of the FinTech Hustle. Thanks a lot.